Well, we are in a series on the Psalms of Ascents, that is, Psalms numbered in your Bibles, number 120 through numbers 134. And as we've been saying now for a little over a month, these were the songs the people of God sang as they made their pilgrimage from all over the country three times a year to Jerusalem for one of the great feast days. Now, we're not going in particular order, and so this week we come to Psalm 130, and it's a psalm uh, that I think, it's like many other psalms, it's actually strange for us. Though the Israelites sang this song, corporate worship kind of song, it would be strange for us to sing it because it's heavy, and it deals with melancholy and suffering, and we just don't sing songs like that. Now, we should I mean, the Psalms are full of Psalms, just like this one, but we don't. And the closest we get to this, this sort of thing is maybe, you know, the 30 to 40 seconds of silence during the confession of sin or the service of lament that we, we have on Good Friday. And even then, when we come to that service, people think it's weird because they show up and they're like, well, I don't feel emotionally sad. How am I supposed to sing this? You don't have to feel the emotion of the Psalm to be moved by it. You don't have to be feeling it in that moment to identify it with it and be shaped with it. Well, with with Psalm 130, the psalmist talks about deep pain, that, that deep sadness that can envelop you like a fog and make you wonder if you will ever feel normal or happier again or if you can even just shake it in some way. And maybe it's because of, you know, something you've done or something that has been done to you. Maybe it's from an accident that changed everything. Maybe it's a past event or shame that you just can't seem to shake. And, and, you know, we don't like to talk about this stuff, but the Bible does. The Bible doesn't shy away from it at all. And, you know, God doesn't pretend that the pain doesn't exist or ignore it or tell us just to be chipper and, and find ways to move on. I mean, after all, you know, Jesus openly wept he openly wept at the death of his friends. And I don't think that was kind of a, you know, little tear. I think he probably blubbered. He openly wept at the death of his friends and he cried in his emotional agony, both leading up to the crucifixion and while on the cross too. So no, the Bible takes an unflinching look at pain and loss and suffering and it offers real and authentic hope in the midst of it. Now, God doesn't offer cheap strategies or, or a five-step plan to get your groove back or tell you to, listen, y'all, just suck it up and get back out there. Now, of course, sometimes we do need to suck it up because we're just feeling sorry for ourselves. For ourselves. And that's different. That's not what's on view here. No, it's like what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So we should not be surprised when bad things happen to us, even fiery things like the persecution that, that Peter is talking about there. You see, suffering in this life is inevitable. It's inevitable. Even so, that doesn't give us the right to be cynical or fatalist about it, like a person who always expects the worst, always expects the worst and can't enjoy the good things God gives because he's waiting 
on the other shoe to drop. You know how it is, like, oh, this is nice, but you know, you know what's going to happen. No, you can't do that. But Peter isn't telling us to put up a brave face either. He's not saying you should not weep or grieve. No, Peter is saying even though we may face extremely hard times, there will be an end to our suffering. It will not last forever, though at times it can feel never-ending. And as bad as it is in Christ, and in Christ alone, there is an expiration date to it. Well, that takes us to Psalm 130, that in one way or another kind of gets at all these, these different things. Let me read for us, Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, I hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him again in prayer. Lord, we would ask that we would not see me or see just merely a sermon here, but that we would be in communion with Christ, that we might have eyes to see him, ears to hear from him, that when we hear of this great forgiveness he offers, we would see that it is for us, that this promise this psalmist makes, it's not at a distance, it is not academic, it is not merely forensic, Lord, it is forgiveness for us too because you have set your love on us and you will not let us go. Lord, we thank you in Jesus Christ for this through the power of the Spirit, amen. Well, one of my favorite songs um, is also a melancholy one. Uh, it's, it's not a sentimental, sad song like so many of the, uh, you know, I lost my girlfriend and she even took my dog kind of songs or, the songs of the 1980s that I just loved as a, as a teenager about just brokenheartedness and when will I find love? It's, it's not that. It's not that at all. No, it's a reflection on what feels like the meaningless, meaninglessness of, of life. It was originally written by the 80s band Tears for Fears, which is still one of my favorites, and I will not give them up. But... Their version, with its use of and, and really dependence on synthesizers and programmed drums and all that stuff, it's a terrible fit for the lyrics. It's way too upbeat in comparison to what they're actually singing about. And what made me love the song was not their version of it, but it was a cover of the song done for the movie Donnie Darko from, from 2001, which is about as strange movie as you'll see, and I don't recommend it, but uh, it's, it's such a better song, and it's... You know, this simple minor tune with this, it's just a singer and a piano accompaniment. And the movie itself is about the descent of, of a high school student into mental illness and how lonely and alienated he feels. So the words from the song capture 
the isolation and meaninglessness that he feels. It goes like this. All around me are familiar faces, worn out places, worn out faces, bright and early for the daily races, going nowhere, going nowhere. Their tears are filling up their glasses, no expression, no expression. Hide my head, I wanna drown my sorrow, no tomorrow, no tomorrow. And I find it kind of funny, I find it kind of sad. The dreams of which I'm dying are the best I've ever had. I find it hard to tell you, I find it hard to take. When people run in circles, it's a very, very mad world. Children waiting for the day they feel good. Happy birthday, happy birthday. And I feel the way that every child should, sit and listen, sit and listen. Went to school and I was very nervous. No one knew me, no one knew me. Hello teacher, tell me what's my lesson? Look right through me, look right through me. And what makes me love this song, and just, I, I realize just reading the words doesn't do it justice, particularly because it's so repetitive and so simple. But really, when you read the Psalms, we don't do them justice either because they're meant to be sung. And we miss a really important element to that. What really moves me with this song, though, is that it gets at the sadness that we all feel in modern life. You know, this, this loneliness, the confusion, the alienation, the wondering if what we actually do matters, the, the monotony to day in, day out, that feels like a race that's going nowhere, wondering in the midst of that if we, if we actually matter or if we have value or is this all just kind of one big sick joke and then we die. And it's a counterpoint to, to all the lies that we're sold that tell us, you know, we can conquer anything, we can have a fresh start, we can let go of our past, we can live our best self now, we can have heaven here on earth. You know, I'm a Gen X guy, so I hate all that stuff. And songs like this resonate with me because it feels closer to how life can actually feel. Ernest Becker in his, his seminal work said that, you know, most people deny the existence of death and suffering, despite all the evidence to the contrary. And he calls it our normal neurosis. Our normal neurosis. We deny the reality of our frailty or our brokenness or our sin, our loss, the evils we have committed or that have been committed against us. And we refuse to accept that one day we will be put into the ground in a way that's not much different than a family pet. And it's neurosis, it's neurotic to deny this reality and act like nothing is wrong. And yet we do it all the time. You know, it's why funerals seem so weird to us and why we really don't sing sad songs even when the defining feature, think on this, the defining feature of our faith centers on a man who was crucified for our sin. So if you live long enough, you will endure suffering. And maybe it's, you know, the sort of suffering that comes from living in a creation marred by sin like say cancer, or maybe it comes from the choices you've made or the choices people have made that hurt you. And the suffering I have in mind, though, is it's unique to humanity. That's not to say, for example, animals don't go through pain. They do, clearly, but they're not self-aware in the same way as we are. So a middle-aged dog doesn't contemplate his existence and fear his coming death. 
He's just a dog. You know, a physical injury does not affect a cat's self-esteem. You know, the cat doesn't call into question whether its life is still valuable post-trauma. You know, the alpha male of a pack of coyotes never questions whether he should let the younger or weaker of his pack eat first, and he's not worried about how he's leading them. Just think of Lieutenant Dan from that movie, Forrest Gump, who, I think this is an incredible picture of how it really works, that he struggled to see any value in his life after he lost his legs in Vietnam, and he mourned his loss for years, and it led to self-destructive decisions. He suffered in a way that lasted well beyond the physical pain that he endured from the loss of his legs. So in our text, you know, we don't know exactly what has caused the suffering of the psalmist, but it seems clear that it's sin, that it's his sin that's in view. He says that out of the depths of his pain, out of the depths of his wrestling, he, he cries out to God and asks that God would hear him. So he's, he's in that place where he feels completely alone and broken and where no one sees him, not even God. And you've been there, those times when you were praying and you think, what am I doing? Nobody hears this. That's where he is. He's beyond the place of where he can, at the same time, keep up his, his mask of respectability. He, you know, he no longer keeps his, his kind of masculine, stoic, stiff upper lip composure. No, he cries. His, his shame and his guilt overwhelm him. And he wants relief from this. He wants relief from his burden, and he knows only God can give it to him. But notice something important about this psalm something that is often missed about the Psalms because of the way we study them. This was a song. This was a song meant to be sung by people together. And so this is not a private song. This isn't like you know me listening to music through earbuds by myself, being moved by the song you know, I, I, I said the words to. No, this is a public, corporate worship music. Unlike today, you know, where we actively try to hide sin and suffering and grief and all of it, where it's virtually taboo to talk about death around children or where we grow tired of someone going through a hard time or a lengthy struggle with depression, Israel saw things differently. They talked about this stuff. They sang about it. They had songs like this one memorized, and they taught their kids to sing it. It's why, you know, we, we have frank talk about the reality of our lives in this church, and we wouldn't have it any other way. That's why we, we do so many things in this service together, including the confession of sin. We are all in the same boat, and we need to hear each other say these things. It's so good for you to be able to point out voices of people you know saying and singing the same things together with you. But think about it this way. After David was called out for sexual assault and murder by the prophet Nathan, one of the things he did in response was to write a song. Think about that. He wrote a song about his sin and his plea for forgiveness. He in turn then gave the song to Israel so that they could sing it together in worship and he put like the heading over the psalm, this is on the occasion of Bathsheba. Hear Israel sing. That's Psalm 51. 
And what makes it so striking is not just his confession of sin, but like with Psalm 130 that we're looking at, that he knows in a way that Adam and Eve did not initially know that the only place he can go with sin is not into hiding, though he tried, is to go to God. See, the Bible has a realistic view of just how hard life actually is and how much sin causes real suffering. Modern culture does not. Modern culture tries to minimize sin and just put it off on anything other than actual sin. But no, the reality is like what Wesley says in The Prince's Bride. Life is pain. Anyone who says differently is selling something. And he's right. There is so much good to life, but there is so much pain in life too. And yet, even as Presbyterians who have a healthy doctrine of sin, you know, we practically, by the way we live, deny it. You know, it's ironic how much people long for authenticity and vulnerability. And just right now, there's t-shirts in Walmart with a picture of Tweety Bird that says authentic on it that you could go buy, that this is all over America, that we value authenticity and vulnerability, even as we don't want to have to be that way ourselves. Or we really don't want to have to walk with someone who has lost their composure and is struggling to get it back. Now, it's great to confess you are a sinner, just being me, y'all, until you have to face the consequences of what that sin does and means. That's why when sin and, and suffering happens to us, and it's inevitable, we think it's easier for us to just keep it to ourselves. Just keep going. Just try to handle it on our own because we don't want to be truly known by anyone, maybe even God. So it's like bubble wrapping a bomb. Get that image in your mind. It's like bubble wrapping a bomb and then carrying it around, assuming that you've got that problem solved. I mean, isn't it telling that Paul tells us to bear each other's burdens? You see, to be a human is to be a burden. People will say that to me all the time. I don't want to be a burden. And I almost feel like saying, I'm sorry, you are because you're human. I am too. I'm a burden too. To be a human is to be a burden to someone else, maybe many someone else's. And yet, as it stands, the American church really has come to reflect the wider culture in that we act like self-contained little islands that don't need each other, even when we say otherwise. You know, trying to put up a brave face or pretending like something didn't happen or trying to fake it until you make it or being a saint on Sunday and living like hell the rest of the week is an awful way of living. It's so hard to live like that. And God doesn't want you to live like that. So the psalmist can't beat his sin. He can't hide it anymore. He can't cover it up anymore. So he, he turns to God. And the psalmist then says some of the most beautiful words in the whole Bible, and we do use this for our confession of sin from time to time. He says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. God alone is the judge of the world, and to him alone are we responsible. So when we sin against each other, we are ultimately sinning against God. It's like what Tim Keller said. He said, all sin is fighting God, usurping his authority, taking his place. So if someone is wronging you, look at them primarily as someone who is at war with God. So if God holds our lives up for examination, 
If he looks at every moment of our existence and he should judge us according to our words, our character, even our thoughts, we should be punished as people in rebellion against him. And you know what? Rightly so. But he doesn't. God doesn't give his people what they deserve. No, instead he shows mercy and kindness by forgiving their sin, and he wants to. And why does he? The psalmist says, so that God might be feared. And remember what we said about this from last week when we were talking about fear. This isn't the the cowering, please don't crush me sort of fear, though you know what? That's not necessarily a bad fear to have. This isn't the... uh, I'm stuck in the zoo enclosure with the lion sort of fear. No, this is reverence and awe. This is the restoration of relationship to the king. See, God forgives us so that we might worship him. So we might worship him. This is the exact reason God gives for delivering his people out of Egypt, so that they might worship him. To worship this God is to commune with him, is to be at peace with him. So, you know, sin is ultimately the severing of relationship with God is to be at war with him. And forgiveness then is the restoration of that relationship. It's the ending of war. It's peace with God and life with him. By the way, that's why we end our service with the passing of the peace. That's an important symbolic action we take that recognizes that God has made peace with us and we are in turn to walk in peace with each other. Now, what we desperately need and what we want, though we don't always recognize that this is what we actually want, is to be united to God. It is God, you see, who will make you whole and will heal your wounds. It is God alone who can free you from your past and your shame. Now, this is what Americans often don't get that doesn't mean that you won't suffer anymore. Far from it. But it does mean your suffering has meaning and an expiration date. It means your suffering is not the defining feature of your life anymore, even as it seems to be dominating you. This is also why, for example, the idea of forgiving yourself is so misguided. Just forgive yourself. You know, I finally forgave myself for all my self-hatred and just let my past go. You've all heard it. And more times than not, forgiving yourself is giving yourself permission to repress your sin and continue on with the normal neurosis of everyday American life. I mean, it's that, that bubble wrap bomb that you still hold close to the chest, but now you're keeping it in your purse or in your backpack and you, you pretend it's magically disappeared. It's out of sight, out of mind, but no, it's still there. It's still there. We just don't work that way. Humans don't work that way. You can no more forget what happened. You can no more forgive your own sin than an amputee can pretend he's still got legs or will himself a new pair. The body keeps the score. It just does. Your body remembers and bears that sin. So if you want to be whole, if you want to be healed, you need to be restored by God to God, and only he can do that for you. Only God can restore your humanity to you. Only God can bring you true joy. And Psalm 30 says only God can truly turn your mourning, your grief, into dancing. 
It's why your hope is not in this life. It's not in the temporal. It's not in being young again. It's in a resurrected life to come. You know, without God, your hope is to come up with a new normal. It's to try to overcome your pain or put on a mask in which you convince yourself that you really are fine when you're not, and in turn, to try to make the best of this life that you can. It's trying to find ways to atone for your own sin, to cover it, to hide it as if it never happened, but you can't. These are all versions of self-deception, and there's just no hope in that. If you think wearing a cloth mask is hard, wearing a mask of forgetful self-righteousness where you're trying to make heaven on earth is even harder. But with God, there is hope. With his forgiveness, healing will come. As the psalmist says in verses seven through eight, with this God, there is steadfast love, redemption, and the redeeming of your brokenness. You can't overcome those things. Not the sins you have committed against others or the ones that have been committed against you, but he can. So then what are we to do? You know, like people looking for magic weight loss pills, we want easy solutions that require nothing from us to get out of the mess of our lives. We want steps we can take, books we can read, counselors we can see, medications we can be prescribed to make all this suffering go away as fast as possible. But again, Humans just don't work like that. We're too complicated. Now, I'm not saying there's not a place for counselors and psychiatrists and medications and books and so forth. Yes, of course, of course there is. The primary way God ministers to us is through word, sacrament, sacrament, excuse me, prayer, and other image bearers. So for example, sometimes you need to pray about your car. Sometimes you need to take your car to a mechanic. That's how that works. We need faithful friends and counselors who will walk with us, who will be honest with us, who will lovingly be truthful with us, like Nathan was to David, showing us things we cannot see about ourselves or we refuse to see about ourselves. People who will encourage us or will listen to us or will simply acknowledge our existence and who will affirm that we have value and dignity. Everybody needs that. Men, women, children, everybody needs that. James K.A. Smith once remarked, the madness of the gospel is that the God of the universe has called us friends. Think about that. The one who made the heavens and earth and the seas and all that is in them has called us his friends. Of course then, He uses friendship as one of the major conduits of his grace. The creator and judge of this world has made us his friends. You are a friend of God. There is hope for you. And of course, then he uses his friends, his people to help his people. We need friends. We need to be friends to others. And that, you know, I know what this sounds like, right? This sounds so simple, you know, so quaint, almost like a Mr. Rogers themed, be a friend, be a good neighbor sort of thing. But you know, Mr. Rogers was deeply biblical. He's right. Most adults don't have good friends. And what's more, they don't want them. You know, it's fairly rare for someone to truly reach out in friendship to another person. And 
When it happens, it's often treated as awkward and weird, too much information, man, you know, if not intrusive, and especially among men. You know, I, I can't speak to the, the female experience. I won't because I don't know, but I can speak to the male one, and, and most adult men have acquaintances or maybe hunting buddies, you know, men that they have shared interests with, and that's important, that's really necessary, but they don't have mature friends. There's the difference. Mature friends who they can be honest and vulnerable with. Now, I'm not talking about friends with whom you can complain about whatever is bothering you. You know, the cathartic, man, I'm so mad about... And again, we need that. Everybody needs friends where they can be cathartic like that. What I mean are friends who will say what a thing is, even calling out your sin. Friends who love us enough that they will risk the friendship out of love for the other and will be like Nathan was to David. You know, Nathan wasn't just a prophet. I mean, he was, but he was a friend to the king and said what no one else was willing to say. And lots of people knew what David did. Most people don't want that because there's a certain level of vulnerability that comes with it, especially as it opens you up to criticism. So now, we do want people to affirm us, but we don't want them to be good enough friends that they will say, the way you are living is messed up and it's killing you. I mean, just ask yourself, how many people do you regularly have conversations about your life or about God or about your failures or your fears or your sin? And you know, for most men, that sounds feminine and it's ridiculous. It's Christian. Let's go further. Most Christians, men and women alike, don't have friends in which they talk about what is supposedly their greatest conviction and highest value. You know, God. I'm convinced that true friendship is foreign to us. As, you know, as people who, who supposedly recognize that we are sinners, you would think that our self-recognition would make us more sympathetic with other sinners, but it hasn't. We tend to be more like Adam. And, and hide ourselves. We think our, our isolation and our loneliness is normal, but it's not. I, I've even heard people say they liked the pandemic because it meant they could mask up, put earbuds in, and never have to interact with anyone. Now, in a certain sense, I'm sympathetic about that every time I go to Walmart. But as a lifestyle choice in general, that's sad. Do you think maybe Ernest Becker is right? And what we call normal is really neurotic. We desperately need to be friends with God and with each other. So then God must act. We've said that. He must act, and he often does through our friends and other helpers like counselors or physicians. But again, let's go back to a question I already said. What's our part in this? What's our part in all this? Well, the psalmist says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Notice he repeats that. That means it's important. Our part then is to patiently wait on God to act. Now, it's not to say we don't reach out to friends or go see counselors or go see a doctor. I'm not saying that. But we ultimately have to wait on God to act. A watchman, you see, is someone who stays awake through the night waiting and watching for the sun to rise. He waits and watches. That's it. The night can feel long 
It can be cold. It can be bitter. If there's a specific threat of danger, seconds can feel like a lifetime. But he waits and watches because he knows the morning is coming. The sun will rise. That is what it is to hope in the word of the Lord and to trust that what he has promised, he will make good on. And his waiting, you see, can't make it move any faster. He isn't in control. He's controlled by something outside of himself. It's like what Ray Ortland commented recently. He said, we prove that we really do trust the Lord, not when our prayers are answered, but when our prayers are not answered and everything gets worse, but we quietly say, Jesus is still Lord. He hasn't changed. He hasn't failed. His will be done. Prayer, this is why it's so hard. Prayer is waiting and watching. And like we see with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed, it may be through a hard night of tears in which what we think we want, God does not give to us. So we wait for God to act because like the sun rising, we know that we, he will. We trust We trust, like Paul, that his grace will be sufficient for us. And it may feel like a long time for God to act, or it may feel like it's happened quickly. You've probably experienced both. But our experience of time is notoriously willy-nilly. Either way, we must wait on God to act. So God knows what you've done. He knows you. And he knows what has been done to you. He sees it more clearly than you do. And even so, your sin, both past, present, and future, does not define you in his eyes. And guess what? It's not my eyes that matter. It's his eyes that matter. He still calls you his friend. Think on that. No matter what you have done, no matter what has been done to you, he still says, you are my friend. And he has promised to heal you and he will do it. Now, it may be a long, dark night that feels like it will never end. But the sun will rise. God will make all things new, including you. More than watchmen for the morning, you you have hope because your God is with you. He will not abandon you or forsake you. And let me just say this. This is not my word. I'm just a guy. This is his word to you. This is his promise to you. He will make good on it. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are good. And your steadfast love endures forever. And for some of us right now, that's a hard thing to believe. For some, they are going through a dark night. They have been for a long time. For some of us, it feels just like another Sunday as we get ready for the work week or the school week or what have you. No matter what our circumstances are right now, Lord, you are good and you have declared that you are our friend and you are a steadfast friend that will not let us go. Lord, as we endure what can feel like meaningless days, and move on top of each other, one much like the other. 
Lord, I pray for us that we would be moved by your grace and your mercy, that we would wait upon you to act, that we would wait upon you because you have shown us how good you are and that your word is trustworthy. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.